Thank you, Kelly. Thank you, team. Thank you, William. Appreciate that. Good morning, church. How are you? I can't do that, man. That's awesome. I'm impressed by that. I really am. So pick that thing right up. Uh, look, man, it is good to see you today. Really thankful for our worship team today. We had three people call in sick late uh, with COVID. Uh, and so we've just got a lot of people who jumped in, got a lot of talented folks to come and lead us in worship. So very thankful for all you guys uh, this morning. And I know we've got a lot of folks out uh, with COVID now. So uh, be praying uh, for them if you would. Hope to see them back safe and sound very soon. Uh, welcome. Hope you enjoy the new chairs. We have brand new chairs in the room. Uh, so there's a brand new, yay! That's first time in like, you know, I don't know, 15 years. Uh, I know for some of you, uh, they feel a little hard. Uh, they're new. I, there's a great way of breaking them in. If you'll just come every single week, we will break these in super fast. You just get there, wiggle, right? Just wiggle while you're there. It'll be good. Super thanks. We had a bunch of students, a bunch of deacons uh, who came up here on a Friday uh, to help us move all these in. These kind of came in a lot earlier than we thought. So thank you to everybody uh, who helped us do that. Uh, but man, we're excited uh, about having that. Grab your Bibles, if you will. Let's go to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel 3 uh, is where we're going to be today as we continue our sermon series called Steadfast. We're walking through the book of Daniel. So hopefully you've got a copy of God's Word. Go ahead and be looking there for it. Daniel chapter 3 is where we'll begin in just a second. And while you were turning there, I would be remiss if I did not comment upon the momentous things that happened this week. Uh, this week, we saw something that many of us have been praying for for decades. We saw the repeal of Roe v. Wade and the end of legalized abortion in America. That is amazing. I did not know if I would ever see this in my lifetime. I just didn't. And I know this has been kind of telegraphed a couple months uh, before, but for it actually to happen is an unbelievable turn uh, in our country. Uh, and so look, in response to that, I hope that we are giving the Lord thanks and praise. Uh, he deserves it, right? not only for him, but also just the work that he has done through the tireless number of workers who've been working for this for 50 years to see this come to pass. Uh, and so let's not miss the moment to give the Lord thanks and praise uh, for a change. But look, there are a lot of things still to be done. Uh, first and foremost, this is not the end of our work. It is a continuation of this work. We are still going to have to do our best to be reaching out and loving those who find themselves dealing with a crisis pregnancy. So this means supporting those who are doing adoptions, who are doing foster care, who are doing crisis pregnancy centers, all the great organizations here in Birmingham who have been doing that work, who will continue that work. We need to continue that work to reach out and love those who are dealing with a situation they don't know how to deal with. We must redouble our efforts and continue to help those who find themselves in need. And listen, it will be important for us in these days how we react to this. This is a day of joy for us, but how we react and carry that joy into the world is going to be a reflection to this world of the glory of Jesus Christ. How we carry ourselves, how we speak, speaks volumes about the Savior who prompted us to fight for this in the beginning. And so as we interact both online and in person, man, let's do our best to be responding with grace as well as with truth, uh, as we are excited uh, about this change. But I am grateful to the Lord for what he has done. Daniel chapter 3 is where we're going to be in just one second. One final comment on that uh, right before we jump into Daniel 3. It was a little bit jarring this week uh, as this decision came down uh, that brought many of us uh, so much joy to see an equal number of people in this country or more who are horrified by this decision, to see protests 
uh, to see demonstrations of people who could not understand why this is happening and, and thought this was uh, th- just an unbelievably terrible thing to occur in their life. And I don't know if you were like me, but you watch those things happening and you begin to realize that what you believe is out of step with a vast number, if not a majority of people in your own country. That what you believe is very different from what a lot of our countrymen believe. And that can be jarring. You begin to feel out of place. And it begs the question, how do I live in a culture that is increasingly so much different than me? How do I live in this world and not become of the world? And we had an opportunity to feel that. And guys, that's not going to change anytime soon. In fact, it's probably going to accelerate. We're going to have more opportunities to feel different than the culture that is around us. How do we compose ourselves? How do we react in the midst of that culture? That's something actually Daniel 3 is going to help us uh, walk through today. So I'm glad that we have this opportunity uh, to be here. Uh, If you've not been with us the past couple weeks, we are walking through the book of Daniel following Daniel and three of his friends. These are young men, teenagers, who grew up in Israel. But while they were teenagers, they were kidnapped and taken into Babylon. They are the first wave of exiles. A bunch more are going to be coming. They're going to be taken from Israel into a pagan land, and this is where they're going to live out their days. But God has blessed them, and now they have found themselves in in higher positions in the government. Look at the very last verse of chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 49, the very last verse, it says this, Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. So these three friends of Daniel, Daniel's going to stay inside the court itself, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have found themselves now to be in high authority in a pagan kingdom. Now think about that. These are young guys who have already been elevated to a level of authority in the civil government of a pagan nation. And this is where they found themselves. That's an incredible thing, but you can imagine that not everybody is really happy with them about that. So that leads us to chapter 3, verse 1. Let's start there. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, prefects, governors, counselors, treasurers, justice, magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, prefects, governors, counselors, magistrates, treasurers, judges, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the heralds proclaimed aloud, You were commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigger, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Yes, this is that story. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigger, harp, bagpipe, and all kind of music, the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Let's stop right there. So here we have these three guys who have found themselves in this high up position, but they now find themselves in a quandary. Nebuchadnezzar has set up an idol in a plain south of town. Which, P.S., if any of you are kind of banking on Nebuchadnezzar having had a come to Jesus moment in chapter 2, you can see that that didn't really take. Just because somebody says they love the Lord doesn't mean they love the Lord. Faith is proven by its actions. 
And so while Nebuchadnezzar said, oh yes, God is so great, in the very next chapter we find him setting up idols in the plain of Dura. And so here he is, south of town, he has built this giant uh, structure. Uh, It was 90 feet tall and nine feet wide. Just in case your iPhone doesn't have a cubit to feet calculator, that's what that actually looks like. 90 foot tall, nine feet wide, which means super tall, very thin. This is probably not like a statue of a person, but more just like a shape, more like an obelisk. Uh, and it's plated with gold. And we've actually found different things very similar in size and structure to this through archaeology. So this wouldn't have been unheard of. So he set this, this whole thing up and he invites all of the officials from all the lands that he has conquered to come worship it. So word goes out to all these nations. He's conquered them all. He says, give me all your leaders, all the people I've put in government over you, bring them all here Uh, and I'm going to play some music, and when I do, you're all going to bow down to the brand new idol, which I guess is fine, but what do you do if you're Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Your God says, you should have no other gods before me. You're not going to bow down to any god other than me. I am the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the King of kings. I am not one among many. I'm not just God when I'm over here in Israel. I am the one true Lord, Yahweh. You don't bow the knee to anybody, which begs a question for these young men, are you going to bow or are you not going to bow? Are you going to bow or are you not going to bow? And that's actually a question we're all going to have to answer often, are we not? And you say, well, Adam, I don't have to deal with like, you know, kings and idol worship and things like that. That's true, but we're all going to have to deal with this question of are we going to bow or are we not going to bow? Because he said there's some interesting things going on here. Uh, first off, the, the, the problem here is not really a problem of idol worship. That's not the issue. Because here's the dirty little secret in the midst of this chapter. No one is worshiping this idol. No one. There's not a single person who's worshiping this idol. If you just kind of think that people in the Old Testament just love to bow down to sticks and stones. Okay, no, they're not doing that. No one here cares. You say, Adam, how can you tell? Well, there's a couple of things going on. First off, Nebuchadnezzar has a problem. He is the monarch over a grand empire. He's conquered all of these people, but they all have different laws. They have different customs. They have different languages. They have different religions. How is he supposed to keep this empire together when they have nothing in common? Well, he's come up with a great idea. I'll give them a common religion. I will give them something that will bind all of them together. So he sets up this idol and he says, I'm just going to make everybody worship it. And that way we'll all have something to do together. This will help bind my nation together. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't believe in the idol at all. You'll see that later in the text. He doesn't actually believe it. He's just using this to try to grab everybody together. Secondly, all of these people who are bowing down and worshiping it, they don't care about this idol either. How do you know? Adam says right there, they were worshiping the idol. Yeah, but think about this. All these people yesterday were in their own lands. They have their own gods. They have their own customs. And they just showed up and saw this thing for the very first time. It has no history. It has no anything. It's just a statue that he, uh, he put up in the, in the middle of the plain. They don't buy into it. They said, then Adam, then why are they bowing down to it? Very simple. Because Nebuchadnezzar said, if you don't, I will kill you. That is a motivating factor. Imagine if a call went out over Birmingham and it said, go to church next week or we'll kill you. We're going to round you up and kill you unless you go to church next week. I imagine that next week, attendance would be up. (laughs) 
the room would be filled and it would be the worst worship service we've ever had because all the people would come, the room would be packed. Nobody's worshiping Jesus. They're here out of fear. They're not here to actually worship. These people who are bowing down, they're not bowing down to the idol. They're bowing down to the power of Nebuchadnezzar. See, here's the problem for these young men. The problem is not the idol. The question is not, am I going to bow down to the idol? The question is this, am I going to bow down to them? You know who they are, right? You see, we talk about them a lot. We worry about them a lot. But what are they going to say? What will they think of me? Are they going to fire me? Will they not give me a promotion? Do they not want to be my friend anymore? Are they going to continue to be in a relationship with me? Are they talking about me behind my back? We worry a lot about what they say. And everybody is doing this thing. The question here is not, do you bow down to the idol? Is are you going to bow down to them? And that's something we deal with all the time. Look, students, you are fully aware of peer pressure. You understand what peer pressure is like and how powerful it can be. Here's the sad thing. When you leave high school, it doesn't stop. It gets a little more subtle, but all the adults are dealing with peer pressure too, are we not? There is an unbelievable pressure to do what everybody else is doing. Everybody at your workplace, everybody in your family, everybody in your friend set, everybody in your neighborhood, there is an intense pressure to do what everybody else is doing. There would have been intense pressure on these guys to say, I don't really buy this idol, but, but I'm going to bow down with everybody else. I don't want to cause a stir. I don't want to do anything. And so I'm just going to bow down with everybody else. But the Lord says, you don't bow down to anyone but me. And that includes them do you ever feel the pressure to bow down what everybody else is doing? It's Pride Month for crying out loud. You felt pressure to bow down to what everybody else is doing? You feel the pressure to watch what other people watch, say what they say, do what they do, act how they act? Even when you know that this is contrary to the will of God, contrary to the word of God, contrary to the heart of God, do we feel the pressure to bow the knee anybody and be anyway and just go along with it? We will. Happens all the time. It's not to an idol. It's simply going to be bowing down to a culture, bowing down to an idea, bowing down to the will of what everybody else is doing. We will face this all the time. And you got to ask yourself the question, am I going to bow or am I not going to bow? Let's see what happens. Look at verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you don't serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, dragon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you don't worship, you will immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Did you catch that? Not as God's hands, not the idol's hands, his hands. He doesn't believe in that idol. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. 
That's one of the most powerful lines in all of Scripture right there. You ought to underline that. That's shocking. That's amazing. That's unbelievable faith. Please note this. Um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do not telegraph their displeasure with what is going on. They did not show up on the plain of Dura with picket signs. They did not go and make a formal declaration to the king. We don't believe in this. They did not oppose the building of this. They're letting the culture do what it is going to do. They didn't draw attention to themselves. But when everybody bows down, they stick out like sore thumbs. And they quickly point it out. They quickly tattle on them to the king. King, do you know that the guys you put in charge of your province, those Jewish boys over there, they don't worship your king. They know that this probably will lead to their death, but politics is a cutthroat game and they want those spots. And says, if you guys are gonna stand up, that's just more opportunity for me. And so here come these three boys who are getting caught up in front of the king. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is angry, but probably not for the reason you think. His mind is going to change against them here in just a second, which means at this point, he's still not totally mad at them for their worship of God. So why is he mad? He's mad because they're embarrassing him. You see, these are his guys in his home province. He most likely knows these guys. He understands what they're doing, but this is a bad showing in front of all of these other leaders. He's effectively saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and what are you doing? I know about your God. I know you don't want to do that, but everybody has said, you are embarrassing me. Just bow down and I'll fix it later. Bow down to it. He's used to having people do what he says, but he just assumes this is no big deal. He doesn't believe in the idol either. Just go along with it and it'll all be fine. And these guys stand up in front of the king and say, Nebuchadnezzar, they don't even use his title. Nebuchadnezzar, we don't have to answer you about this, but we will. Here's the thing. Our God is bigger than you. He's more powerful than you. He is wiser than you. And so we're not going to bow down to your God. We're not going to bow down to your little idol. Nebuchadnezzar, I don't know if you remember chapter two, but we've heard the dream where, yes, you are a mighty ruler, but you're temporary at best. You're one among many. And even though other emperors might be inferior to you, there's a God who puts you on the throne and a God who will dethrone you at the end. There's a God whose kingdom lasts forever. There's a God who created everything. There's a God who holds all human history in his hands. And so yes, looking around, it may seem like you have all the power. It may seem like you're in control. It may seem like you can do whatever you want, but my God is greater than you. So no, he's got the power to save us out of your hand and he's just about to. But even if he doesn't, that's the key. Even if he doesn't, we're not bowing down to your idol. And you gotta ask the question, why? Why say that? Why poke an angry bear? Why antagonize a tyrant who does have the power to murder you with no consequences to himself? Why would you say that? Because in their minds, their God is worthy. He's worth it. When compared to this temporary tyrant, the God of the universe who made them, knows them, loved them, has protected them, has taken care of them, who is the one true God. He's worth it. And so no, 
I'm not gonna bow down to your idol. And even if I have to lose my life, I would still rather choose the Lord than to bow down to nothing because he's worth it. And when you and I face similar situations, the question's going to be, is he worth it? That's a live question. Is he worth it? Because sooner or later, it might come down that to follow the Lord, it's going to cost you. In fact, as we continue to go through this culture, it's probably going to cost us even more. Living here in the Bible Belt as we have, it has not cost us as much as it has cost some of our brothers and sisters, even in America. Certainly not as much as it costs many of our brothers and sisters around the world. But that will increasingly change in our culture. And as the costs rise, we have to ask ourselves the question, am I willing to pay it? Because there is a cost involved in following Jesus Christ. He tells us this. He says, listen, before you follow after me, count the cost. Count the cost before you come to me. Because listen, if you try to save your life, you're gonna lose it. You're gonna have to lose your whole life to follow after me. If anybody wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily to follow after me. There's a cost involved in following the Lord instead of ourselves, following the Lord instead of this world. And when the price tag gets higher, we have to ask ourselves the question, am I gonna bow or am I not gonna bow? And the answer will hinge upon this other question, is he worth it? Is he worth it? Just ask that in your heart. Is he worth it? It didn't cost us a lot to come in here and, and worship this morning. But when I have to go out here and, and it costs me, is he worth it? Is he worth loss? Is he worth pain? And, and this is where we've got to make sure to lift our eyes and truly see who the Lord is. See, I hope that every single day, you, as you walk with him, as you look into his word, as you and interact with him, as you live in the Holy Spirit, you begin to see more of who he is. You need that vision. You need to be able to see him. It's not enough for me to see it or your, your wife or your husband to see it or your friends, or your children to see it. You've got to see it. Is he worth it? Do you look up and recognize that our God is grander? He's more incredible. He's more amazing than anything else in all of creation. You ever seen one of those pictures of the universe? Those grand pictures that our telescopes have taken of the deep universe and you just see all these little pinpricks of light and you recognize that these are not stars, they are galaxies. And you can't even number them. They're beyond that. And you just see a sea of galaxies. And then you begin to understand that every one of those pinpricks is a vast galaxy, the size of which I can't even get my mind around. And this isn't one. It's an, it's an unnumberable multitude of galaxies. The span of that is unbelievable. And then recognize that it is our God who spoke all of that into existence. It's our God who understands it. He is vaster than the grandness of the universe. And he doesn't just speak it into existence. He controls it. He understands it. He moves it around exactly how he wants it. Things that we can only grapple with, he understands fully. He is the wisest. He is the most intelligent being that there has ever been. He is the most powerful being that there will ever will be. Look at the stars. He's the most creative being that there ever will be. Look at the beauty and recognize he's the most creative, joyous, artistic being that there has ever been the sheer vastness of who he is ought to leave us in breathless wonder to say our God is worth it. He's amazing. He's incredible. He is beyond me. And if the, if the vastness 
of that doesn't move you to worship, then we begin to recognize that a God of that kind of grandeur and that kind of glory knows me. He crafted a very specific place for us on purpose. And then he crafted us on purpose and he made us in his image. He says, I I know you. I'm gonna make you different from everything in all of creation. I'm gonna make you in my very image. He creates a place for us. He says, follow me. And when you and I look back at him, having received this gift of life and say, no, thanks for the gift. I will do with it what I will, but I refuse to follow after you. He does not simply brush us out of existence. He does not fall down upon us in faceless wrath. Instead, no, he comes after us in love and mercy. He chases us. He helps us. He walks us through history with a plan unfolding until finally he sends his own son to come save us. Jesus Christ comes and lives a sinless life, not to simply show us up and to show us how it's done, but to do what we could never do. Jesus lives a perfect life. And at the end of it, when the world kills him, he rises again from the grave. And as he rises into glory, he again doesn't just throw this back in our faces, but instead in mercy and grace, he offers forgiveness. No matter who we are or what we have done, he says, I will give you a mercy you can't possibly understand. Why? Because I love you more than you can understand. I want to give you an eternal life that cannot be taken away from you. So much so that I will take myself and put myself in you through the Holy Spirit. That's how much I care. This is how much I love you. Do you remember that vastness of the universe? Think back to what we said a couple of weeks ago in Ephesians. We says, I wish you could understand the height, the length, the breadth, the, the length and the breadth and the depth of the love of God that surpasses knowledge. The vastness of the universe does not convey the greatness of God's love for you. It is deeper than you can understand. He offers this to us. His love, his mercy, his grace is given to us through his son, Jesus Christ, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He has invited us into the very life of God himself. When you and I live in him and see that kind of glory and then you compare it to the puny brightness of some idol in the midst of a valley or some monarch who's here today and gone tomorrow, we say, sorry, I'm so sorry, I can't bow down to your idol. But compared to him, you just need to understand He's worth it. He is my king. He is worth it. And so no, even if it costs me, he's worth it. Even if you threaten me, he is worth it. Even if it causes me pain, he is worth it. He's done everything for me. And so I will give everything for him. He's the one who will never leave me or forsake me. I choose him. And therefore, these young men refuse to bow. You're going to bow? Or you're not going to bow? Let's look at what happens. Verse 19. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. And because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Now, this is the part of the story we don't like talking about. 
This is the part of the story that we wish wasn't there. Many of you know the end of this story. God will save them out of the furnace. Spoiler. But this is the moment we don't want. You see, I'm sure Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have preferred for God to save them before they went into the fire. Wouldn't it have been better, Lord, if you could have saved me before I had to go through the trauma of being thrown into a burning, fiery furnace that would incinerate me? Why do I have to go through the fire? And I can't give you a full answer to that. But I have to be honest and tell you this. Sometimes when we take a stand to walk with the Lord, we're actually going to have to pay the price. Sometimes when we follow the Lord, we're actually going to have to pay a price and suffer. This has been true all throughout history. If you look in Hebrews chapter 11, it's a, it's a famous chapter we call the Faith Hall of Fame. And the author walks through all of these heroes of the Old Testament. David's in there, Moses is in there, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, get a, get a mention. They're all in here. And the first half of the chapter is just victory. It's miracles, it's victory, it's awesome. And then mid-sentence in the middle, and for the rest of the chapter, it's just about people losing their lives or losing their dreams or losing what they had and not getting what was promised. And God commends all of them. He commends all of their faith. Sometimes he saves us before the furnace. Sometimes he doesn't and we have to pay the price. Do you see why you have to have this settled in your heart? Is he worth it? Because sometimes we will actually have to pay. If you're banking on, well, it'll all go work out and so it's gonna be fine. No, no, sometimes it, it, it doesn't. Sometimes it hurts. Sometimes there's loss. Sometimes there's pain. And sometimes it hurts when you and I take a stand and say, no, I choose the Lord over the world. It hurts. Are we still willing to take that stand? Are we still willing to follow after Jesus Christ? Are we still willing to offer up our bodies as living sacrifices daily, as it says in Romans chapter 12, to say, no, I follow after you even if it costs me. I choose you because you're worth it. Sometimes it's going to hurt. Last week, we talked about the tragedies of this world. They're going to continue in this world. We can't be fully immune or, or, or insulated from these tragedies. And when they come, will we continue to stand and choose the Lord? It depends on whether we see if he's worth it or not. But let's see what happens next. Verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, true, O king. And he answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth, check this out, is like a son of the gods. Huh. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego find themselves being bound. This is not where they wanted to end up today. This is not what they thought would happen. But as they find themselves being bound up and then being ushered towards the mouth of the, the furnace that's going to kill them, it dawns upon them that God's not going to save them. He's not going to help them. And so, guys, I'm so sorry. I'll, I'll see you on the other side. And they finally get pushed in where they fall and realize they're not dead. Shadrach, 
Shadrach, are you good? Are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay, Shadrach? Abednego, are you are you good too? You're all right. You you. How are you? Wait, who are you? And in the midst of the fire, there's a fourth figure walking around. And here's Jesus making a cameo appearance in the Old Testament. Hey guys, heard the speech up there. It was awesome. He didn't say that. I made that up. All right, so okay, I had to say something, right? He has an appearance like a son of the gods. God comes to protect these young men, and they're walking in the midst of this massive furnace. Look, when you and I go through trials, I can't guarantee that there's not going to be pain. God doesn't guarantee that there's not going to be pain. Sometimes we are going to go through the fire. Sometimes we have to go through the trial. Sometimes we will suffer loss. I cannot tell you that you will not suffer loss or that you won't have pain, but I can guarantee you this. When you go through the fire, you will find that Christ is there with you in it. When you go through the pain, Christ will be right there with you. Remember, he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. No one can snatch you out of my hand. I give you eternal life. There's no power on the planet that can take you from me, not even death itself. And even when we go through pain, even when we go through trial, he says, I will never abandon you. When we go through the fire or the flood, the Lord says, I will be with you in it. Look around and see that in the midst of our pain, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the persecution, you will find the Savior right there with you. You will not be alone. You may have to walk a hard path, but you will never walk it by yourself. You can find Christ in the midst of this fire. Jesus is already there to protect them and to help them and to walk them through it. What fire are you going through? You might say, Adam, I'm already here. I tried to stand and I had paid the price. I wouldn't bow and I paid the price. I tried to do the right thing and I paid the price. It's hard. Pain is terrible. But do you see Christ in the middle of it? Do you recognize in the midst of your pain that he is with you? It is a guarantee, a promise that he will not break. Look to him, even in the midst of the pain, and you will see him there with you. Look how it finishes out. Verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and not even the smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Unbelievable. 
what they thought would have ended in their destruction has now led to their promotion and all by the hand of God. Listen, bad things are going to happen in our lives. We cannot prevent that. And I can't tell you why those bad things happen. Sometimes bad things happen to us because of our own choices. We make decisions and we reap consequences and we bring those things upon ourselves. But many times we, there isn't any of that. Bad things just happen to us. We didn't do anything to deserve it. It just happens and we suffer anyway. And the question will always be there, God, Adam, why didn't God save me from this? He could have, so why didn't he save me from this? In the same way, why didn't he save Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego before they went into the fire? He could save them then. How come he didn't save them before? How come he allowed them to go through this trauma? How come he allowed this thing to happen? It's what we ask when pain happens. Adam, why, why did God allow this? Why did he spare me here, but not spare me there? How come he let me go through this? And I don't know. I don't know. There's no single answer to that. I don't think anybody can truly tell you exactly when and why in those situations. God will let us know later. But in this circumstance, I can tell you why God let them go through the fire. Because when these men came out of the fire, do you know who saw it? They did. Did you catch that? Satraps, the governors, prefects, the officials. All of those people who had come to bow down to the stick in the valley, all the people who gave up on their own God to bow down to the thing that they just saw yesterday, all of the people who said, no, I'm going to give in to the fear of a guy in Babylon because I think he has all the power. All of these people have now seen that there's a God who's greater than Babylon. There's a God who's greater than Nebuchadnezzar. There's a God who's greater than their God. Because they have just seen the Lord move to save those who took a stand for him. When these young men went through the fire and came out unharmed, the entire world saw the glory of the one true God. And when you and I walk through the fire, when you and I go through trials, when you and I go through persecutions and we react differently than the world, when we keep our eyes focused on the Lord, we don't lose our hope in the midst of chaos, hope in the midst of pain, hope in the midst of persecution. When we choose to keep our eyes on him, to point everyone towards the Lord, you know who sees it? The whole world sees it. It says, how in the world can you react that way? How how can can you be okay in the midst of this? There must be something to this God you keep talking about. And the one true Lord is glorified. You see, God has put us here as a city on a hill, has he not? We are to be the light of the world as we live in the midst of this broken and dark place. Saved from that very darkness, the Lord has said, I'm going to pour my life through you. I'm going to reflect myself through you into the world. And as we shine forth his glory as we stand for him, not ourselves, not our side, not our issue, but for him, the world cannot help but notice, but they'll never see it unless we stand and not bow. They'll never see it unless we take a choice that says, my God is worth it and I choose him over anything you can offer and over anything you can threaten me. I want him more than anything. 
And just like I said at the beginning, how we do this is unbelievably important. We don't act as the world acts. We don't wage war as the world wages war. We don't go tattle and attack the way these people attack Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. No, we act differently. When we're acting, when we see them failing, when we say them being shown to be wrong, we don't rub their faces in it. You feel tempted to do that this week? We don't rub their faces in it. Do you know why? We always need to remember, we used to be them. When Jesus found us, we were them. We were lost, we were sinful, we needed forgiveness and the Lord Jesus Christ had grace on us and so our posture to the world is not one of triumphalism, it is a posture that says you too can know the love and grace of Jesus Christ. You too can know the salvation of Jesus Christ. You too can know that no matter who you are or where you've been or what you've done, there's a God who is not only worthy of worship, he loves you and is offering life to you. If you will simply come and put your faith in him, why won't you join us in the worship of the one who is truly worth it? You gonna bow? Or are you not gonna bow? So do this for me. Back your heads and close your eyes for a moment. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Look, I don't don't know where you're at today. I don't know what you might be struggling with or what situation you might be facing. I'll be honest, I've I've been preaching this passage to students for over 15 years. And during that time, I have watched our culture transform dramatically. And I got no idea what it'll be like 15 years from now. But for all of us, students, adults, of all ages, there's going to be a call as to whether we're just going to go along with the rest of the world and do what they do, or we're going to take a stand and say, I choose him. I choose him because he's worth it. He's the one true God. He loves me. He gave his life for me when I didn't deserve it. He died for me and I had done nothing for him. And he gave me his very life. And there's nothing in this world that's more precious than that. And so no, I don't want to go through pain and no, I don't want to cause a fight. But I can't bow down. I can't say yes to what you want me to say yes to. I can't do what you want me to do. I choose him. It's a hard call. But it's the right one. And when you and I have the courage and faith to just cast our lot upon him, the Lord does the supernatural and shine forth his glory to a world that desperately needs to see it. So I don't know if today you're you're struggling with a relationship, a job problem, friendship, something in your family, your neighbors, your friends. I don't know what it is. It's different for all of us at different times. But I wonder if today the Lord's asking you a question. You're going to bow? You're not going to bow. Will you stand for me? He's standing for you. He's already done that at the cross 2,000 years ago. Even now, he prays for us, upholds us, sustains us, strengthens us, helps us, encourages us, empowers us. We can trust him. 
And when the world comes calling, we just say, no, I choose the Lord Jesus Christ because he is worth it. Maybe today you say, Adam, I'm in the midst of that fight. And, and I just, I, I'm scared. And I, I understand that. That makes sense. I know the boys had to be scared. But I wonder if today you could just lift up your eyes to him. Look to him. See him. Let him fill your gaze. See him in all of his grandeur and glory. See him in the magnificence of his love for you. And be reminded that he absolutely is worth it. Lift your eyes daily, hourly to him and see him to give you courage to continue to stand in him. Or maybe you're here today and say, Adam, I, I don't see it. I get that you see it, but I don't, I don't see it. I don't know why anybody would do that. I understand that. If I could, could I just encourage you to pray a dangerous prayer? In fact, I'll dare you. I dare you to simply to pray this prayer. God, show me your glory. I dare you to pray it. Dare you. Say, God, show me your glory. God, show me who you are. If you're there, show me your glory. Show me through your words. Show me through others. Show me who you are. And if you in honesty can lift your eyes to see what he will show you, you'll see it. So Heavenly Father, help us. I'm so thankful that you are just as worthy today as you were when these young men took a stand for you. You're just as worthy today as when you created the universe and you'll be just as worthy when this world, this heaven and earth are, are gone away in a brand new and stand for all eternity. Father, we're so grateful to give you honor and worship and praise. Would you help us to see it? Would you help us to see you in ever greater detail? Would you help us to see even more of your grandeur, your greatness, your glory, your grace, your love? And Father, we will give you the worship that you are truly worthy of. Thank you, Father, for who you are and what you continue to do through us. We choose you. In your name we pray, amen. In just a second, we're going to end with a worship song that many of us have sung many times before. We're gonna sing in Christ alone. And there's literally words in this song that we're gonna sing that say, here in the love of Christ, I stand. Here in the death of Christ, I, I'm gonna stand. And it's a song that you can just sing. It's words on the screen that can be just that. Or you can make a choice with your heart to say, I don't want it to be words on the screen. This is what I do. Everybody's about to stand in just a second. And you can just stand along with them and it doesn't have to mean a thing. Or you can make a choice to say, no, I choose to stand in this moment and give my God praise. I will worship him because of the gospel he has given to me, because of the life that I have in him. I make a choice to worship him with all that I am. Let's let our posture of our bodies, the words of our mouth, the intention of our heart be worship to a God who is worth it today. Amen. I'm going to be standing right here. If you'd like to kind of have somebody pray for you, I'd love to pray for you. These altars are open. We had a ton of people at the altar. For the only place it would be a great place to bow would be at an altar before Jesus Christ. Come pray for your friends. Pray for the culture. Pray for yourself. Come to this altar today. But let's give God intentional worship this morning. Amen. Yes.